This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Everybody, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, happy whatever day it is, whatever time it is you are listening to this. Can you dig it? I can. My name is Sam Lacrosse, and welcome to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. And we are wrapping up today our Culture Death series. I have been super, super both disturbed, both, or I would say no, both. I'm not talking about two things. I have been disturbed. I have been elated. I have been uh, crestfallen. I have been optimistic. I've been pessimistic. I've been nihilistic. I've been all the things when doing this series. But I wanted to end it on a different note, kind of like I did with the Critical Gender series last year. So if you remember with a lot of stuff I did with the Critical Gender series, or if you did not remember, or if you do not remember, or you did not know that I existed back then, shout out to you for both categories. Go back and listen to that. So the, I wanted to format both these series kind of in the same way. I wanted to open it up talking about culture and do a more cultural societal analysis for the first two volumes of both series. And then I wanted to make it more applicable, more personal in the third and final part. So last year, the last referendum in the Critical Gender series was on truth, and this one is going to be on our just general personality in general, kind of the attitude we should adopt towards life to fix culture, because at the end of the day, only human beings can fix culture. And the way we fix culture is by shaping our minds and our attitudes to fit a narrative that is better than the one that is currently out on the marketplace. Now, with that being said, I'm very excited about this. I want to talk about this topic for a very, very long time. I didn't know how to frame it, but now that this is kind of out there in the world, everything is kind of being, you know, kind of talked about in terms of this, whether we like to admit it or not. And we all, especially as young people, talk about it a lot. I think this is a very, very important topic. It's a topic I'm very interested in and one that I cannot wait to dig further into. So without further ado, let the digging begin in the final volume of the Culture Death series. Here we go. So unlike many writers, I've never found much trouble in either starting or ending things. It's a very unique blessing for people that do what I do because most writers, and I think creatives in general, can work their way through the middle of something quite easily from what I can tell. And so can I, to be frank, when I start pressing forward in whatever it is. It's hard to do, mostly because I don't want it to be shitty, but I certainly can be done. And like most things, it just takes a little bit of effort and thought to avoid you totally carpet bombing whatever you're trying to attempt to finish. Stephen Covey once wrote that you must begin with the end in mind. That statement, a very powerful one, contains two musts within it. First, there must be a beginning that you can build upon. And second, there must be an end that is defined enough that you can blaze a path towards. This is how I treated all of my books that I've written, am writing, and plan to write. It's worked out with all of them so far, and God willing, will continue to do so. 
And that has not been the case, however, with this specific series. Last year, for my Critical Gender series, I wanted to end it with a referendum on truth. The entire point of the series was to illustrate that there are certain truisms about both men and women that we cannot simply sweep under the rug in our culture. It's too important for us as human beings to not acknowledge them, because if we don't, like we have for the most part of the last few years, we'd evolve into hysterics and stupidity. This should not be our aim as fully functional human beings, as it turns out. And with our current series, the one on the death of American culture, I didn't know exactly how to land this plane when I came up with the idea. I wanted it, like our relationship to the truth, to be something that was fully in our control to fix. And I also wanted it to be fundamental, something so essential to the core of how human beings achieve success that it would appear to be somewhat self-evident. And finally, I wanted it to be powerful, to resonate with the audience in a way that they could all relate to. So, after pondering said landing, I finally came up with what I deemed as a solid step, one that can help keep us grounded and, quite possibly, save our culture from descending further into the mire should we adopt it. In Volume 1, we touched on cultural Marxism, the movement towards the, to erode the foundations of American culture and values by inverting it with things that deliberately cut away the things that hold us together. In Volume 2, we hit on cultural globalism, the outsourcing of local communities across America that comes from a subversion of worldly values for shared values across community and country that lead us to placing our localized elements of our lives on the back burner. And to cap off the Culture Death series, I wanted to take culture out of it, like I did with the Critical Gender series, and place ownership on the people that make up the culture, which, as it stands, is us. I have a complicated relationship with Dan Bilzerian. I always have. If I'm being truthful, I don't think I ever will. I wrote about him in one of my very first posts on my blog way back in early 2020 with largely the same message. This dude is a tool, don't listen to him or feed into his said bullshit. That message contains a lot of truth to it. I don't think it's totally wrong, and I think many people, if they also adhere to the truth, would say the same thing. Dan Bilzerian, known to many as the most as having the most, quote, enviable life of any man on Instagram, is a wealthy former poker player who, getting a large inheritance from his now-in-prison corporator father, now jet sets around the world accompanied by some of the most beautiful women in that world. He has every car anyone could ever want to own. He pops HGH and steroids like the M&Ms and not the really hyper-feminine type. He takes so many drugs that he had two heart attacks for the age of 32. He shoots guns and parties the Tate brothers. According to most accounts, he's fucked nearly every one of those beautiful women that cling to him, his money, and his smoking products for clout and relevancy in his deviant world of social media debauchery. I remember finding out about Dan Bilzerian in my senior year of high school back in 2015. A friend who I played football with told me about him and how much he envied his lifestyle. I did my research, scrolled through his account, and immediately put him on my quote, do not like list. A good portion of this was because of what I stated earlier and for what I eventually learned about him. Dan Bilzerian grew up living a very sad and troubled life. His father, as mentioned, was thrown into prison on federal finance charges. On top of that, nothing was inherently that special about him. He wasn't really truly very good or very talented at anything. He washed out of college in the Navy SEALs. Before the money and the Roy rage, he wasn't that handsome of a guy, as it turns out. Scroll down and don't read this blog.com in the article to find out. After finding a good amount of success in poker, what eventually lit the fuse that became the current Dan Bilzerian was a $150 million trust fund that his father left to him and his brother. After that was taken into account... Bilzerian used his resources on hand to craft the image that is now what we all know to be the king of Instagram. I used all of this information to roast Dan Bilzerian every chance I got. He was nothing more than a daddy's money kid who used his money to buy his lifestyle. His company reportedly lost $50 million due to corporate mismanagement in 2019. I flamed him for that. 
He tried to sue Mark Wahlberg in 2014 for not getting, quote, fairly compensated while making Lone Survivor. I flamed him for that, too. He threw a famous porn star off the roof of a pool and missed the pool, causing her to break her foot, and I really flamed him for that. But something was missing. It wasn't the whole picture. There are lots of people that live this life and do these type of things. Maybe not the porn star off the roof scenario, but still in the same ballpark. After some reflection, I came to a conclusion that I didn't want to come to, but one that was undeniably true. I was jealous. And this is particularly evident after reading the foreword for his book, The Setup, which is written incredibly by David Goggins. Goggins, who I absolutely adore, was the last person I ever thought would be writing the foreword of a book for someone like Dan Bilzerian. As admitted by Goggins himself in the foreword, that was something he thought as well. However, how they were not different was not what Goggins honed in upon. Instead, he made a very insightful point about how they were the same. And that point was this. A lot of people hate David Goggins because they wish they were more like David Goggins. They wish they had his discipline, drive, and willingness to make his life one of the most unique on this earth. They may not like him or his personality, and many don't. But when they really look deep into themselves, a lot of the people that don't like him want to be exactly like him. And he's absolutely correct about this. But as Goggins also points out, a lot of people hate Dan Bilzerian, myself included, because they wish they were more like Dan Bilzerian. They wish they had all of his nice toys, the beautiful women, the stacks of cash. They may not like him or his personality, and many don't. But when they really look deep into themselves, a lot of people that don't like him want to be exactly like him. He is also absolutely correct about this. As I continued reading, one thing I ultimately came to appreciate, perhaps the only thing I appreciate about Dan Bilzerian, was his transparency. In a similar vein as what Charles Barkley, someone who I also greatly respect for the same quality, once said, he was not trying to be a role model. He simply was who he was. As said in his own words in the opening of his book, quote, I want all of the people who said that I was their idol to understand exactly who they are looking up to. I am no hero. I've had more than my fair share of fuck-ups. I've been selfish for the better part of my life, and the world might not be a better place for having me. But I am honest. From a young age, I wanted hot girls to like me, and I wanted to be so rich that I wouldn't have to listen to anyone else's bullshit. These are hardly lofty goals. I wasn't trying to save the manatees here. I wanted to get tons of pussy, and I wanted total freedom. I achieved those things and all my other fucked up hedonistic goals behind whatever I dreamed was possible. Surprisingly, I did so without ending up in prison, and I've lived to tell you about it. End quote. It's hard to hate on Dan Bilzerian after reading that passage. Dan Bilzerian may be a giga-chatted, polyamorous, and testosterone-infused hobbit who may not be worthy of the notoriety he has received. But so is Frodo, and he ended up taking that lackluster heroism making him the ring-bearer that threw the one ring into the fires of Mount Doom. That is too important of a variable discounted to be discounted excuse me, in a fair analysis. However, this does not mean, to both Bilzerian and Goggins' point, that this is what we should strive for as an optimal life to live. As Drake once said, dreams are something that money can buy. But... Dreams are temporary. They fade away into the back of your subconscious and are hardly heard from again, in most cases. Reality is, per usual, what matters. And this is the crux of where Dan Bilzerian and David Goggins are both right, but also where they're both wrong. Dan Bilzerian has the life of most modern man's dreams. He's surrounded by beautiful women, bountiful riches, exotic locations, and just overall cool shit in general. But Dan Bilzerian, even though living the life of an apparent invisible envy from that demographic of people, is actually not an enviable person at all. The reason behind this, the reason why his mentality differs from Goggins, is for one reason. 
Dan Bilzerian has everything that he wants. Dan Bilzerian has hit his peak. He has everything that he could possibly, quote, want to have. But to reference another Drake song, wants and needs are two very different things. Sure, he could add more money, more women, more cool shit, more sex, more travel, etc. And he has. But at a certain point of your life, all of that hits a point where it's the equivalent to store-bought cake. It tastes great only because they do everything to distract you from the cake itself, which is empty and without substance. No matter how much frosting they dump on and how many sprinkles they shake on top of it, nothing will actually compare to the real thing. And this begs another question. What is the quote-unquote real thing? Well, in the cake sense, it would be actual cake, the good kind that you make out of a Betty Crocker packet and use actual ingredients in your kitchen for. In life, however, it is the same but different. The real thing of life, the one that is the thing that Dan Bilzerian and to some extent David Goggins are missing out on, is the one thing that money cannot buy. Meaning. Dan Bilzerian has traded away all of the meaningful things that he could do with his money and time for nothing more than the life version of store-bought cake. He has doused himself in high after high. He has soaked himself in riches that he can, he can never and will never satisfy him. He has drowned, quite literally, in pussy that will never ultimately quell him. He might seem happy. He might be happy more times than he's not. But is he satisfied? Is he really happy with the life that he has chosen to live? My guess, based on his choices that ultimately define every person in the world, would be no. There is an important observation that we should make from this. The thing that has derailed our culture more than anything is this mindset. The one that is perfectly exemplified by Dan Bilzerian and to some extent by David Goggins. This mindset, one defined by seemingly endless hedonism that dominates every portion of our lives, has injected life's version of store-bought cake into our culture's veins. Because of this, we all have the life version of diabetes now, which I've come to call cultural hedonism. Cultural hedonism dominates every portion of our lives. We have abandoned all sources of meaning in our lives that gave our culture incredible vibrancy for the longest time for things that are incredibly shallow. We keep making this trade day in and day out, hoping that it will give us the fulfillment with life that we've seen our ancestors achieve from living a completely different style. That alone should have been enough to warn us that we, whatever we seek is impossible. It has failed. That gap, unfortunately, will never be, be bridged. Hedonism is a false idol. It is a slippery slope to misery if you choose it to see it as such, and in my opinion, you should. It may seem good on the outside, like store-bought cake, but the inside is going to disappoint you in the least and harm you at the worst. This is a particularly toxic mixture for young people who follow people like Dan Bilzerian for men and Addison Rae for women. It's making our culture sick, which is leading to its death. And to prevent its death, we first need the cure for its sickness. And to do this, we must first attempt to understand why hedonistic behavior is so attractive to young people. Second, we must then discuss this inverse and attempt to find out why doing things of substance is not attractive to young people. And finally, we will lay out a cultural incentive structure that points us towards more meaning and less hedonism. And I don't think I've ever had someone try the Bilzerian method while reading one of my posts. Maybe it's better. If you could find out and email me about your experience, I'd be really appreciative. So, but before that, you have to hear the rest of my post first, so please stick around for the other 40, no, 40, like 30-ish minutes of the podcast. Part 1. The Hedonic Treadmill of Hell To understand culture, you must first understand what shapes it. Carl Truman, in his masterful book The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, 
has stated that a good portion of the erosion of our culture has to deal with the specifics of this phenomenon. For the longest time, culture has been formed by individuals conforming around institutions. Now, institutions are made to conform around the individual. This has led to a culture of rampant narcissism, putting yourself as the predestined beneficiary of an entitled and unearned lexicon of benefits with zero contribution to society. As someone who has spent a good portion of his time on this medium ripping apart these institutions, I would be remiss if no blame were to be placed at their feet. They have been corrupted and have gone soft, allowing other people who have no business dictating anything to embolden this behavior in individuals across our nation and the world. Institutions, to the maybe surprise of some, are hardly limited to things like banks, governments, and school systems. The most powerful institutions, as always, are cultural ones. They are what we listen to in the car, what we watch on television, what we talk about with our family at the dinner table. They shape conversations, which shape our minds, which shape the way we think, which influence the way we act. They are incredibly important and not something to be taken lightly in any sense of the word. I watched my first episode ever episode of The Bachelor this past Monday. I've been avoiding it like the plague for my entire existence on this earth, and I was very proud of the fact that I was able to escape the maw of the black hole that is that abomination of a show. However, I needed to watch the season, my first season, because I was genuinely curious about its dynamic. Zach Shawcross, the season's bachelor, is a friend of mine. We were co-workers for almost two and a half years, and worked on adjacent teams for about one and a half of those. We weren't best buddies, and I think it's a stretch to even say that we were friends. But we were friendly with one another, enough so that we shall talk on the occasion I promised to watch the show to help support him. Zach is a good person. Whenever we talked, it never descended into anything related to the things that most 20-something men talk about in this current climate. He was never disrespectful of anyone, talked down to any people, or made lewd or derogatory comments towards women or other co-workers of ours. He talked about his family a lot, his goals, and what he wanted to achieve out of his life, which is basically boilerplate Americana. A wife, kids, white pick a fence, and a decent-sized house. I think it's where most of our common ground came from and how we ended up being friendly with one another, at least enough to hold extended conversations about the stuff. It was in this context that made Zach's decision to go on The Bachelor, at least initially, incredibly strange to me. It didn't seem like his cup of tea at all. Zach is as he appears on television. Very tall, handsome, and good attentioned. Even though he is all of those things, had a solid career in my industry, made decent money, and lived in the center of Austin, Texas, Zach was not like the typical person that took part of what the city had to offer. He was very much gung-ho on going after all the Americana he talked with me about, and talks about on the show. But it was that same Americana, the one driving him to find the family in White Picket Fence, that drove him to apply to the show. He was accepted and, from what I hear, did well in his season of The Bachelorette, well enough to be invited back on for the lead in the following season, at least. I was incredibly excited for him when I figured out he got selected. When he got back to Austin beforehand, he never let anything slip. I commend him a lot for doing what I failed to do. Shut the fuck up and keep my business to myself. However, when he was announced, the excitement around the bulwark of the Bachelor universe was not in alignment with what mine and people who actually knew Zach was. Instead, people were immensely critical of him. They called him things like boring, dry, and uncharismatic. They said that he wasn't differentiated in any way. One hilarious Instagram account accused him of something called fat terrorism. I was incredibly confused by this, and because here was something in theory that everyone, particularly every woman, should want. And yet, when it was right in front of their faces, a very significant portion of their universe rejected him. This was a stunning revelation, and convinced me of something that I had been thinking about for a very long time. What people say they want, versus what they actually want, are two very, very different things.
The people that say they want someone like Zach Shawcross are liars. What these people actually want is what The Bachelor never fails to give them, cultural hedonism. The Bachelor, perhaps the biggest cultural institution and promoter of culture, cult, cultural hedonism ugh, in our modern world, thrives on the instability of people that take these th the serious things seriously. When Shawcross was announced, people didn't go crazy because Zach Shawcross wasn't a good guy. In fact, they all did so because Zach Shawcross was exactly the opposite. The Bachelor and its toxic values that it routinely spews on young people who want drama and or love has called imme caused immense pain and suffering to that same group of people. It has completely warped and distorted their view of what a loving and caring relationship actually looks like. It causes men and women to almost do farcically stupid things like the women of the season attempted to do with Zach this past Monday. The reason why people hated the Shawcross decision of casting him as the new Bachelor is for a single purpose. He isn't good television. As mentioned, Shawcross is a healthy, normal, and stable man. He doesn't cause drama, even though I'm pretty sure the producers who curate the show will do his best to paint him as one later on. Don't let the television fool you. He is not those things. But it didn't matter, and doesn't matter, to our purveyors of cultural hedonism. It didn't matter if Zach Shawcross was what women claim to, and do, at a large extent, want in a man at his core. All that mattered was their ability to make him dance for them should the cultural hedonists demand it. Thankfully, he is not yet, and I hope my friend has the courage to keep doing the same going forward. But the question remains, why? Why is cultural hedonism and its value so attractive, particularly to young people? Well, in the example that's most relevant to The Bachelor, it's first and foremost incredibly entertaining. People, as we've been beaten over the head with for years now, have very short attention spans. Only a certain amount of things can captivate them for so long, and usually not the ones who did that involve delayed gratification or a consistent and stable source of value generation. Therefore, people who are in search of value do so in ways that can provide a quick and easy dopamine hit, usually in the form of a shortcut or easy way to drive value. They want things that in the, quote, boring and dry world that is filled with, quote, boring and dry people like Zach Shawcross, that will keep them entertained and motivated. This, they feel, will do exactly what Truman talked about. Have the institutions cater to them instead of ca them catering to the institutions. They're fine with value, so long as it's only going into them in exchange for none of it going out of them in any return. This is not how things work, at least in any, anything functional. But yet they do, at least so in a world that is becoming more and more defined by cultural hedonism. Meaningful things, as they turn out, do not often promote the highs that you feel hedonistic things do as you do them. They're usually very low and slow burn that it can eventually work their way up to a simmer. That's a long wait, particularly when you're talking about value and not about water. Cultural hedonism, therefore, is naturally more attractive than meaningful things for the strict purpose of the inherent and instant reward system that is present in doing things that have no meaning attached to them whatsoever. This uneven exchange of value for less value is the gap that has pumped rocket fuel into the cancer of cultural hedonism. People know a bargain when they see one, and cultural hedonism is the biggest bargain of them all pertaining to value economics. Whatever you can do, to let, whatever you can do less effort for greater reward, you take that trade 11 times out of 10. It ceases to be a culture anymore. And at that point, it's just simple mathematics. And following that point, there is no math that makes more sense to most people, no things that make something more in 11 out of 10 than the combination of clout and peer pressure. In today's world, social currency and how you're perceived is the paramount value in a world defined by cultural hedonism. Thus, there is a lot of pressure on people to fit in and do things that increase their social market value regardless of whether it is intrinsically valuable at all. As discussed at length already, 
Most culturally hedonistic things are not. And unfortunately for us all, that doesn't matter in a world that is run on the inverse of what it should. What this results in, mostly, is exactly what the logical conclusion you would normally come to tells you. People start to do ridiculous things in a performative fashion to get the attention of other people. They get nothing out of these exchanges because the exchanges are, by definition, meaningless to that person. All inner value and meaning is outsourced to that of the culture as a quasi-plaything, where the people that are in charge of the culture then get the enhanced privilege of taking charge of your life. It shouldn't be this way, but with cultural hedonism, it always results in the same outcome. So, why do people in a world defined by cultural hedonism do these ridiculous things to perform for other people? They often don't want to, as you mentioned earlier, but what they want doesn't, doesn't matter. Only the culture, saturated in cultural hedonism, does. The entire point of cultural hedonism is the inverse of a meaningful life, one defined by largely empty and sad things that end up wreaking havoc on your life. The social proof that people caught up in cultural hedonism are looking for, the reason why they make fools out of themselves by degrading their lives to court jesterdom, is this. The appearance of desire, fun, and pleasure. In a culture that is in the midst of decaying, people need to be opposed to what came before so they can justify and rationalize going away from it. This has, to the point of Truman and others, resulted in, in an internalized identity system that puts feelings and pleasure at the very core of who we, who we are as human beings. It doesn't matter that hardly anything we do won't move our life forward in a positive direction. It only matters how we feel in this identity is validated. This is the crux of where cultural hedonism strikes into the hearts of young people, the thing that draws them in most closely into its trap. Hedonism, even though it is completely de deviated and uncorrelated from what provides a greater sense of meaning in the world, feels really good at the moment. This is why people like Dan Bilzerian have made their fame on social media, because social media is a series of moments, a highlight reel of curated clips that project an image onto the world. And this is what we all do when we engage in these tools. But social media is also a hall of mirrors, a closet of deception that masks nearly everything that is blemished about your chosen venue of lifestyle. Everyone who participates in this game, even those who aren't ensnared in, the ensnared in the trap of cultural hedonism, plays this game as well. It is an inbred incentive structure that forces us to chase that feeling of unblemished outside validation and virtue for as long as the dopamine high continues to rise. Because, as people who have pioneered the biohacking field like Andrew Huberman have taught us, the higher the dopamine cycle gets, the harder it is, and you eventually crash because of it. It's not enough to post just one thing in a world filled with cultural hedonism. It's not enough to just go on one vacation, have one nice dinner, have one round of sex with the seven that you picked up at the bar last Saturday. No. Cultural hedonism is completely dependent on excess, the thing that constantly builds and builds until there is no value left to be reaped. It is the living and internal embodiment of excessive excess. There is so much but so little there at the same time. Dare to stretch it anymore, or in any other place, and you risk blowing up the entire thing. Dare to shrink it, and you have to go back to your normally normal worldview and live with the immediate, quote, dissatisfaction of being among those who have lived a life undefined by it. For the people most affected by cultural hedonism, both of those are absolutely unacceptable outcomes. They can't even be entertained. Cultural hedonism is exactly what the hedonic treadmill concept tells us it is. It's constantly following up and doubling down with no intention to either see why you're doing these things or if it can be of any benefit to you at all. It's a feedback loop of misery and a death spiral into hell. However, fortunately for us, 
there is an alternative path, one that cuts directly across cultural hedonism and right into the thing that cultural hedonists hate more than anything in the world. Part 2, The Hedonic Treadmill of Heaven. Tradition, the spoken enemy of cultural hedonism, is decried by the people at practice as, that practice as forsaken and rustic. Those people are Luddites, they say. They have no idea how to interact in the, quote, modern world. You know, the one that makes practically everyone miserable. They have not, quote, gotten with the times. They've refused to adapt to fit the utopianist vision of cultural Marxism, globalism, and hedonism. Therefore, they and all they stand for must be destroyed. The main purveyors of all of this are, of course, the young, those too self-obsessed and saturated to gain any context of how the world, outside world actually functions. They get their news from their college professors and curate it for them on their B-reels and TikToks. The only families they've ever encountered is their own. The only experience of religion through shows like Dope Sick and Horror Stories of David Koresh. It shouldn't be a shock that they think everything is terrible. With the way that cultural hedonism has shaped our viewpoints, we should be more shocked that tradition is even an option at all nowadays. However, there is a hidden reason for the cultural hedonist hatred of traditions and those who practice them. It is never something they'll say aloud for the simple fact that it would become so incredibly embarrassing to admit upon revealing it. More personally, it's also something they love to lie to themselves about. Even though they claim to not be able to stand those who uphold traditional sentiments about life, that they can't stand themselves even more, the reason behind that, and the concurrent Achilles heel of cultural hedonism, is this. The people that practice tradition are happier. The number of statistics that I could cite on this are nearly endless. However, they all point to the same undercurrent for all of them. Those who follow traditional cultures, systems, and values are happier than those who do not. It's that simple. It is the same across culture and across institutions all over the world with very little variation. People who confide in traditional gender roles between men and women are shown to be happier than those who do not. People who practice a religion and attend its services regularly are happier than those who do not. People who get married and remain monogamous are happier than those who do the opposite of those things. People who have children and invest their time into raising them are happier than those that do not. People who volunteer to help people by committing their resources and money and time are happier than those who do not. People who spend more time getting to know their neighbors more intimately and invest in their local communities are happier than those who do not do those things. And these things, however, have been condemned almost universally by our cultural hedonists, and even more so by the young people caught up in its swell. I have many reasons that I've come up with this in my head for why this is so. First, to follow up on the initial point, a distinction must be made between happiness and pleasure. People who pursue meaning are those who find happiness. People who pursue hedonism are those that find pleasure. They are very different things at the core of what the words mean. Happiness is an attitude, a state of mind, a way of being. Pleasure, on the other hand, is a moment, a flash, a check on your current emotional state. One stays, the other flees. One is dull, the other is passionate. One is desired by all, the other is attained by people who claim to want the first. Pleasure, by consequence, must be repeatedly sought after over and over regardless in order to achieve that lifestyle defined by it. It is exhausting to push that amount of energy out of your system doing anything, much less things that don't matter in the first place. To be happy in life, you mostly just need a strong foundation of standards and values and not much deviation from them. 
when that is set down into stone, you just have to live according to the rules that you set for yourself. And when you do, you'll find yourself naturally attracting things that fit your life cycle due to your self-imposed inability to break out of that own cycle. Pleasure, on the other hand, does not have a set of imposed standards and values due to people finding pleasure in different things. Some people find pleasure watching cat videos on YouTube. Others find it while scrubbing the internet for calisthenics-based foreplay routines, their sugar baby of their choice. The possibility is quite literally endless. It is completely up to that person as to what, in that moment, will give them the most pleasure. You can never give your mind, or nor anything dependent on your mind, i.e. everything, a break, because pleasure is, once again, fleeting. The happiness and pleasure conundrum is what defines the rest of why tradition in our culture is being eschewed for and excused for hedonistic behavior. The swapping of the two is not at all by accident. It is purposeful, something that is completely by design. If we were to remember one thing throughout our analysis of cultural hedonism, one constant thing that we can do to help refute it, it would be the fact that people that espouse it, nearly every single one, is an incredibly unhappy and unfulfilled person, like Dan Bilzerian and the women he gallivants around the world with. With that in the back of our minds, we can continue our analysis to see why exactly doing things of meaning of substance are not encouraged in our era of cultural hedonism. First, cultural hedonists despise doing activities that provide greater meaning because it goes against their central doctrine. There's a lack of fun involved with them, a lack of pleasure. Doing meaningful things are not, have never been, and never will be, to a large extent, quote, fun. Fun has no place in the definition of significance, for the most part and is not when we really examine our lives. The central tenet of a meaningful existence is that, over time, not a lot of the things that we do to craft a meaningful existence are themselves meaningful. Creating a business that is, is a lot of trudging through shit, putting out fires, and putting up with nonsense from competitors, employees, and vendors. It's hardly anything you see on an Alex Hermosi reel. Creating a family is a lot of dealing with things about your significant other that annoy you, banging your head against a brick wall trying to teach your children simple things, and feeling closed in by the responsibilities that burden your life. Having a lasting friendship is much more about putting up with the other person's bullshit over that length of time than loving them for a span of a few moments inside of it. The reasoning behind all of these things, the reason that not a lot of meaningful things are, quote, fun, is because meaning and fun are diametrically opposed in most cases. Meaning, contrary to what the cultural hedonists will tell you, is both deeper and better than fun. Cultural hedonism tells you that this is not the case, setting all the things I just mentioned as evidence for their false conclusion. They would be misguided, and tremendously so, in their assertions. Meaningful things, yes, are mostly boring, mundane, and stale. However, since boring, mundane, and stale things make up a majority of your life, you would do yourself a favor to learn to appreciate and make the best out of those moments. Because if you don't, your life will frankly end up fucking miserable. As said before, some things are simple. This is basic math. Hate the things that make up a majority of your existence, and you will end up hating your existence. End of story. And also contrary to what the cultural hedonists will tell you, even their lives are composed this way, because everyone's live is com lives are composed this way. Even if you're an Instagram influencer, for example, you will still have to do incredibly boring things of learning how to optimize Instagram to make your life look great. Dan Bilzerian has a remarkable amount of blow-your-brains-out style planning he has to do to make sure his life is, quote, perfect, all the time, at least to those who look up to him like they do. No one is able to escape the dullness and the triumph of, this, of the mundane in life, no matter how much you slice it. Therefore, it is reasonable and productive to assume that these are the things you should put the emphasis on optimizing, rather than the very few high points you hopelessly attempt to replicate over time. 
Another variable we must absolutely consider in our evaluation of why meaningful things are not encouraged is exactly the same as why hedonistic things are encouraged, clout and peer pressure. I found this to be the case with an overwhelming number of people who are practitioners of a religion, or a cult if you want to be so bold, although they're not the same thing, certainly. People, particularly religious people, feel very taboo, and have always felt this way, about expressing their faith to people. It is on the traditional list of not-safe topics, along with politics and sexual preferences. Curiously, however, politics and sexual preferences have both made their way incredibly into the mainstream into almost every avenue of life, while religion has remained on the sidelines. And this is an incredibly curious phenomenon. So, why is this happening? Over time, politics and sex have moved away from being taboo to not being only tolerated, but celebrated. Political and sexual activism are now the peak of human flourishing in American life, a signal to the rest of the rubes that inhabit our culture that you are one of the chosen elite that gets to be privileged enough to have these categories. It's elevated positioning to be in the luxurious enough position to talk about things that most people cannot afford to do. That, to the point of people like Rob Henderson, is the new showing of luxury in our culturally hedonistic society. But religion, on the other hand, is very different, still, from politics and religion. Or politics and sexuality, excuse me. It is something that touches everyone and everything. As Cardinal Manning once said, every conflict at its core is theological. Not all people care about politics and sex as much as everyone does. But everyone has a stake in the spiritual element of the world. Everyone has a stake in living and dying and how we should conduct ourselves around both topics and between both topics. This is something that cannot be avoided, much less so shoved under the rug in paltry fashion. But to most, particularly those who inhabit our ruling and expert classes, religion is still seen as boorish and old world. So, therefore, the people who inhabit our, class or our classes infuse the cultural hedonism do not identify with that way of living and being out of fear of social ostracization. It is much better to talk about getting drunk than to talk about the prophet, much easier to talk about your sex life than Christ, and much easier to talk about how much you hate Joe Biden rather than how deeply connected you feel with the Buddha. There is nothing hedonistic, nothing casual, about religion in the slightest. It is the thing that is most opposite of that tenor in conversation than most other things it can come up with. It is that way, obviously, by design. Therefore, religious people are, and always have been, ostracized from the greater culture as cultural hedonism has become more accepted. They have not adapted, as per their choice, because they have chosen to dedicate their lives to something higher than their own feel-good desires. Thus, any attempt at assimilating into a society that prides itself on the passions and prides of everyday life is naturally antagonistic to the religious man, who feels incredibly at odds nearly every aspect of a society that shuns him. Finally, to follow on this, the most important part that society shuns for the meaningful person is the part that actually does something with his life. Meaning is an active pursuit, not a passive one. Doing meaningful things generally does not feel that good in the moment, and this is for two reasons. First, as we have said before, most of what constitutes meaning is generally not very grandiose nor significant. They are little things, small chinks in the armor that people generally keep swinging at until they eventually hit something. It is far from a cosmic revelation that happens over and over again, like some people mistakenly believe it is. Second, Doing things of substance and meaning is not valued in our era of cultural hedonism due to the fact that those con things contain the one element that cultural hedonists cannot stand. Delayed gratification. Instant gratification, the oil that keeps the wheels of cultural hedonism lubricated and firing on all cylinders, is not present in meaningful things because, generally speaking, meaning does not happen in spontaneous fashion. It must constantly be worked upon and sought after. Many sacrifices must be made consciously in order to achieve what and obtain what meaning represents. 
instant gratification is not an option for people pursuing meaningful things because the people that do pursue meaningful things know inherently that the two of them cannot appropriately mesh. Therefore, over time, people don't like the taste of things that are meaningful in life because they feel they cannot no longer get anything from them. They see the trade-off that they falsely perceive as accurate in their heads and want no part of it due to not fitting with their, cult their defined version of cultural hedonism. There is no reward for the risk in their minds. Better not to try at all, to stay in their current misery of cultural hedonism, gripping to the non-existent hope that it will eventually bring them something to their life. And unfortunately for them, it will not. It is this act, the blatant refusal of the cultural hedonists to act upon making their lives improve, that keeps them stuck and the cultural incentive structure permanently skewed to things that make people deliberately miserable and unhappy. Dopamine receptors begin to wear thin and deteriorate after a while. All pleasure fades. Unfortunately, a lot of these people will realize this lesson too late, long after they've based their lives on an entirely false premise. However, there is an alternative to cultural hedonism, an additional incentive structure that exists and that we must push in order to effectively deter it and get something in return that is much better for both of us and our culture that envelops us. Part 3. Search what they sought. Before they got into an incredibly petulant feud with Steven Crowder, the Daily Wire had a trend going through most of their shows and various other platforms. It wasn't anything that was deliberately intended or scripted, I believe, but it was nonetheless showed through in several conversations surrounding America's cultural decay. While it is certainly not an easy fix to a very complicated problem, it is, in my opinion, a very strong factor in how we can begin to incentivize a pivot away from cultural hedonism and towards cultural purpose. The topic that the quandary of hosts brought up in nearly every single case was marriage. Marriage, a highly contested concept in our culturally hedonistic era, has dominated the Daily Wire throughout the past year. Jordan Peterson did a highly intensive deep dive into the subject that spanned almost two hours on the concept. The main hosts, all of them seemingly happily married, have all chimed in surrounding their foundations of their significant other and how much it has helped them within their career. Jeremy Boring, the company's CEO, has credited his marriage with making him successful and wealthy. All the other hosts agreed, saying that being in a committed and monogamous marriage has undoubtedly had been a net benefit as their lives have gotten more complicated and demanding. The culmination of all of this discussion came to a head at one of their coveted backstage events, which took place at the Ryman Theater in their new headquarters of Nashville, Tennessee. There was no topic more discussed, particularly when it involved Dennis Prager, than marriage. This cultural institution, perhaps the most important cultural institution, was direly important, and not just for the fact that you can have an excuse to have sex and raise kids. The reason that the conversation around marriage is pushed so much by the hosts and by culture is very simple, but one that is very counterintuitive in the era of cultural hedonism. It is simply better. One of the biggest ideas I've been playing around in my head as of late is the idea that some things are just better than other things. The evidence, from what I can tell, is so strong that it can only be ignored in cases of mass ignorance, which can either be purposeful or non-purposeful depending on who the person is and what their situation looks like. This phenomenon can be shrugged off, shrugged off certainly, but I believe that the people that do shrug it off do so at their peril. To start with the example laid out by the Daily Wire, it is better to be in a monogamous marriage than to not be in a monogamous marriage. It is better to eat healthy foods than to eat foods that are shit. 
It is better that you have a value system than to, have, than to not have a value system. It is better to get off your ass and move your body than to deteriorate into a lazy and slothful piece of garbage. It is better to have a good relationship with your parents than to not have a good relationship with your parents. These things may seem self-evident, even though they're not always optimal and by no means perfect in all cases. But in a culture defined by, culture defined by cultural hedonism, their topics, particularly on items that point towards meaning, are incredibly contested. I believe that this is where we need to start when it comes to incentivizing cultural purpose rather than cultural hedonism. Defining your life by purpose instead of defining it by hedonism is simply a better choice for you in the final analysis. It is better to surround your life with things that fill you with inspiration to do better both for yourself and the broader culture rather than to do things that decay both. It is not only a better option, it is a duty that every person inside of our culture possesses, as we covered in our analysis of cultural globalism. It is better for you to do things that mean something versus to do, be stuck in and do things that mean nothing. It's not just a matter of mindset. It's a matter of sustainability. There are rare cases of people like Dan Bilzerian that could live a hedonistic lifestyle for the majority of their existence. But there are a ton more of those people that have been left alcoholic, broken, delusional, drug-addicted, porn-obsessed, and filled with more STIs than they can remember due to them not investing within things that matter and outsourcing them for things that only took a minute to pursue for pleasurable gain. In the final judgment of something, quantity does matter. The quantity of people that do well matters. This is where cultural hedonism and the culture death of America eventually lead. The key to living a good life is a proper investment of resources, your energy and time being the two most significant one, and preferably inside a system of values. Investing in things that will pay dividends throughout your life is perhaps the greatest investment you can make both in yourself and on the world around you. These are things that have a habit of perpetuating themselves further out if you choose to give them the time and decency that you should. If you choose to invest foolishly in a financial sense, you will be left destitute and empty. Should you invest them wisely, you will have a lot more room to maneuver effectively as you navigate the world. The same is true, and I would argue effectively much more relevant, in terms of your energy, time, and values than you put out into the world. In doing this, you will end up bringing a tremendous amount of fulfillment and quality of excellence to your life you could have never thought possible in a world filled with cultural hedonism. As mentioned, nearly everyone that adopts a culturally hedonistic mindset does so knowing that they could be using their resources to a more effective capacity. There is no one, not even Dan Bilzerian, who is capable of not acknowledging the hole that they feel burning through their soul. And simply acknowledging that, cultural purpose, that a culturally purposeful life is better to you, for you, you will automatically be incentivized to follow that track onto greener pastures. This bleeds into the second important topic of discussion. In knowing that something is better for you, you automatically, by default, know that you are making a good decision with your resources by investing in them properly. In study after study, people have been asked what makes a good life. And time and time again, in one form or another, the answer remains the same as to what factor in living a life that provides value is. A lack of regret. Regret is constantly cited as the number one factor for sadness at the end of a person's life. This is very well founded. There is nothing more sad, when you think about it, than looking back on your life wishing that you hadn't lived it because of something better that you could have been spent it on. Whether that was starting a family or getting out of your corporate job or telling someone that you love them, these are always the things that come back to haunt people when they realize they're at the end of their rope. Your overall value when you see your life embodying is, a direct is directly correlated with the things you both did and did not do as you lived it. The person who regrets the least goes to the next life happier than the person who regrets the most. This is another example of the self-evident truths that the world throws in front of us. 
a lack of regret, a lack of doing the things that we know we should have done, is absolutely essential towards incentivizing you towards living a life of tremendous meaning and value. Fear, as it turns out, is a great and useful motivator. Meaning is essential to whether or not you feel regret about the way you choose to live. A lot of things that people regret are things that they did while spending their time doing nothing. Why did I play so many video games instead of getting my mental health straight? Why did I break up with that girl who was obviously good for me? Why did I not listen to my parents and spurn their communication when I knew they were just trying to help me? On the other hand, a lot of things that people don't regret are things that they did while spending their time doing something meaningful. Man, I'm so glad that I worked on myself enough to be content with who I am as a human being. Geez, I'm really glad I chose carefully when I chose to marry my wife. I would have been stupid to have not done so. Fuck, I'm super glad to have a great relationship with my parents, especially as they're aging into a phase of life where they're more towards the end of their lives than the beginning of them. The key to living a life that isn't regretful is to live a life that is meaningful. Chasing meaning, not the lies and entrapments of cultural hedonism, will automatically put you on a stopwatch that won't leave you feeling empty once it hits zero. It fills every bit of you with conviction and drive knowing that even if you fail to achieve what you want, you at least didn't deliberately stop yourself from trying. What people regret isn't that they didn't make their dreams come true. What people regret is holding themselves back from the opportunity of doing so itself. Finally, to give our feelings some incentive to do what they do, and contrary to the popular belief of the cultural hedonists, doing meaningful things may not make you feel good while doing them. However, also contrary to the beliefs of the dominant cultural view, they will do something else that is infinitely more important. They will make you feel better about yourself. The bottom line of cultural hedonism is this. No one likes to feel that they don't matter. No one likes to feel that their life amounted to nothing, that they've wasted their time on frivolous bullshit that didn't come to produce anything remotely fruitful throughout their life. Sadly, due to our cultural decay, many people do feel this way, with no shortage stopping them from doing so as we move forward. If we really want to change that reality, we first have to change ourselves. If you want to live a life of goodness, of sustained happiness, you must orient your life towards meaning and away from things detracting from it. You need to have the discipline to force things in your mind to outweigh all of those that distract you from living a life that doesn't curate a greater sense of nobility and striving towards things in your life that are good for you, things that enrich you, and things that make you and the world better. What is good for people, the most important things in the world, is good for the world by proxy. There are no shortcuts. They are inexplicably correlated, tied at the hip by fate and future. The saddest thing about the death of American culture and about cultural hedonism is that it is, by definition, killing our souls as people. A culture is not a static thing. It is dynamic, completely built up by and composed of people and those who inspire them to be better than they once were. Feeling like you can live a life of purpose, that you can achieve a degree of satisfaction with your work and who you are as a person, is the key to achieving all of those things as you seek to do in your life. If you don't feel that your life has meaning, you will not live a life defined by meaning. It's a simple calculus, and one that everyone would do well to learn. However, to first learn something, you have to be willing to give up all the bad information infecting your brain on the way. That infection is getting our culture sick, particularly in the vein of cultural hedonism. If we are to stop its spread, we would do ourselves all a favor to stop ourselves from poisoning one another at our roots. Cultural hedonism 
the deliberate shunning of meaningful purpose for empty and sporadic debauchery is the result of a culture that no longer values people. When a culture fails to maintain or value the main thing that comprises it, everything begins to decay and die, starting with the people themselves. To give our culture meaning once more, people need to take it upon themselves to shoulder meaning with one another. Focusing on things that matter, pointing your aim and vision at what's above and good instead of what's below and vile, will be the key to destroying cultural hedonism and preventing our culture from its own destruction. Preventing America's culture death is simple, but not easy. First, we must not desecrate and destroy our values and institutions that got us here, and treat them with the respect and dignity they deserve for getting us to this point. Second, we must take care of our local communities and people, not outsourcing our relationships and care to the outside world where we cannot take care of our own. And finally, we must remember to always pursue meaning over pleasure, which will automatically instill a sense of duty into us all that all of our lives matter, and that we are in this together. With all of those oars rowing in the same direction, we have a fighting shot to preserve what once was and prevent the atrocity of what could be should we go down this road even further. And thus, another annual series concludes. I take a bow, but with one final ode to Bilzerian, I think a model and a line of coke would do just fine. Not really. You know me. I'm not fun. But that series was fun. I love... I... I, I I love where it took me. I kind of, I think, I hope you guys do. Obviously, this is for you. It's not for me. Well, it's for both of us, but especially for you guys. I think that this is a very important thing to talk about. I think, you know, culture is, is the thing that fascinates me most. It's the most important thing we can think about, uh, in my opinion, is the way our culture is going and the way our culture acts and the way everyone acts inside of that culture. So thank you guys for bearing with me for this first series. I really, really appreciate it. It was awesome and it was so fun per usual. And we're going to get back to it. We have a really, really great conversation coming up next week. I'm super excited about it. Uh, by the way, watch my boy Zach Shalcross on The Bachelor. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of The Bachelor. I know many people that aren't a fan of The Bachelor, but watch my guy. He's going to do well. I hope he finds love. I've talked to him a little bit since it's happened. Um, obviously, he hasn't done, done, given me anything. It's not, you know, he's got under an NDA, obviously, but go support my guy. Uh, support me also if you feel like it. Audiobook for Value Economics is out now. Two-time number one Amazon bestseller, featured in Forbes magazine, all that kind of stuff. So, but great conversation next week. I'm super excited for it. Coming off a really compelling event, a really inspiring, convicting event. So, in the meantime, guys, own the day, open your mind. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you guys next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I make my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?